Open the Word of God with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. The Lord led us this morning to Luke chapter 12, where Jesus said to his friends, to his disciples, Fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which hath power to cast body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. The body is so much less than the soul. The soul exists without the body. Men can only hurt your body. The Lord can hurt both body and soul in hell. Then we came to Luke 16. And the story from our Lord Jesus Christ of the rich man and Lazarus. They both died. They both were immediately in separate places with a great gulf fixed between the two of them so that no one could pass from one to the other. A great reversal of fortune. Lazarus had suffered in this world. He was comforted in that world. Abraham's bosom, known as paradise, known as the third heaven. The rich man had been comforted and prospered in this world. He suffered and with torment in fire in hell he lift up his eyes and in his desire to save his five brothers from coming to that place he asked Abraham to send Lazarus back to them but Jesus through Abraham explained that if they didn't like the preaching of the word of God they wouldn't be moved to repentance by a man coming back from the dead and the lesson there is that if you want to avoid hell after death, then pay attention to the law and the prophets, the word of God, because it tells you how to repent and follow God and obey him and keep all of his precepts and commandments. The other issues that we know around that ability, like election and regeneration, are really quite worthless to the point, are you going to repent and keep his commandments. Nowhere does it say in any of those verses, repent and keep his commandments if you're born again. It just says, repent and keep his commandments. We might know on the other side of it that the only ones that repent and keep his commandments are born again, but when you start playing fatalistic games like that, you dilute and distract from the threat and the warning and the exhortation of Jesus Christ and the others that preach the same kind of a message. Let's come to Revelation 20. We don't know who's going to die next in this church or who's going to die next in your life. But every time that you hear about a person dying, you should be thinking about the other part of them that isn't contained in a casket the other part of them that isn't in the room at the funeral home, the other part of them that has departed this world and is in one of two places. We should think about it. And it should cause us to examine ourselves every single time that we go into the house of mourning that we will change our lives. So that when it is our time, we will have an angel chariot there to carry us into heaven. Revelation chapter 20 is a frightening passage of Scripture, and it should be. Like the Lord Jesus said, I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. And so I read to you the last five verses. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, 
according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I saw a great throne. I saw a white throne. The holy throne of God and of the Lamb. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in our body, whether they be good or evil. Here we stand before God as it tells us. The face of him that sat on the throne was of sufficient fury, power, and authority that heaven and earth fled away from the face of him on the throne. That's my God. That's my Lord Jesus Christ. Turn the universe upside down to get everyone standing before the throne of God. And they will stand there. And books will be opened. He will not ask you what you think of him. He will not ask you what you think of yourself. He will not ask you if you think eternal torment is too much. He will open the books that record everything you have done. And every man will be judged according to his works. God is just. God is fair. I can't imagine it being more just, more fair than opening books where everything's been recorded and we're judged by what we've done, what we've said, what we've thought, what we didn't do, what we didn't say, what we didn't think that we should have done, thought, or said. It'll all be there. This is the Word of God. This is Revelation chapter 20, the last five verses. You will stand before the judgment throne of Almighty God and of the Lord Jesus. The face of Jesus Christ on Judgment Day is very different from the face that everyone wants to show you of Jesus. He will turn the universe upside down to judge rebel sinners. All the dead will be brought, body and soul, to be judged by God for their works. Because the sea is going to give up the dead that were in it. What dead are in the seas? Any souls in the sea? No souls in the sea. But the bodies will be coughed up out of the water. The bodies will be come up out of the graves. Body and soul will stand before God. You'll be in a body to stand there, and you'll have a soul in that body, a spirit in that body, to receive the judgment of God and to hear the works that you've done in your life. They've all been written down. It doesn't matter that you've hid them from your parents. It doesn't matter you've hid them from your pastor. They're written down and they're there. This is the word of God to us. Every sin that you've ever done is written in the legal books of the omniscient God. Sinners will be thrown in the lake of fire for eternal torment, in the loneliness and the blackness of darkness forever, in the terror of that existence that they will have. If your name is not in the book of life, there is absolutely no hope for your salvation. The only way your name is in the book of life is if you repent and obey God totally. That's the only way you can know your name is in the book of life. You can't play games with some Arminian decision, some Arminian decision plus baptism, some Arminian decision plus baptism plus church membership. None of that will, will hold in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to come down to your works. How do we know we're in the book of life? It's only by obedience. He's the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. That Hebrews 5, 9 I gave you earlier today. The only way your name is in the book of life is if you repent and obey God. Why does God, the Holy Spirit, want to call hell the lake of fire? Have you ever come close to drowning? It is a claustrophobic feeling of suffocation. If you can hold your breath for a minute, then hold your hand over your mouth and your nose for two minutes, and you'll start 
to get an appreciation for suffocation and drowning in the lake. But it's called a lake. God chose the word. I love every word of God. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Lake. Drowning in a lake. Cast into the lake. You're thrown into a lake. But it's a lake of fire. Because the other thing that men dread is being burned. And for you to hold your finger in a match for one second, one part of a second, it bites and hurts that finger severely because pain on our nerve system was designed by God to be very painful. But it's, hell is called the lake of fire. Suffocating vengeance in fire. This is the God of the Bible. This is his phrase. So we use it and we should remember it and we should think about it. And when a person is lying there in a casket, they aren't there. They're in hell, the lake of fire, or they're in Abraham's bosom, which is paradise. Right. And when you are in that casket, and you are all racing towards your appointment with death, the real part of you, that body's going to be changed before you get it back is in either heaven or hell. And so we've got to pay attention to the Bible's warnings about hell, and this is one of them. Why doesn't the Bible call it prison here? When death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. Why doesn't it call it trouble? Or why doesn't it call it the end? Or why doesn't it call it loneliness? Or why doesn't it call it separation from God? I remember hearing preachers say so many times, that hell was separation from God. Why did they do that? Why? Why not call it what it is? The lake of fire. The vengeance of an eternal God. He's coming with fire and his mighty angels to wreak vengeance on men. Separation from God. Well, why don't you call it purgatory? Why don't you call it a nursery? Listen, the world, sinners right now are existing a separate from God. Is it, how is it hurting them? Would you explain it to me? Right. Why don't we call it the lake of fire that it is? Because that's what this passage calls it. Why did he call it the lake of fire? Because drowning and burning are our worst fears. This is the word of the Lord. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Why does God write names in the book of life? We know that. No sense in going over it right now. How do we know that our names are in the book of life? By repenting and obeying him. So let's go to Matthew chapter 7 to see if that's what Jesus really taught. Matthew chapter 7. We're standing before God. The books are open. And you start whining and howling that you don't deserve to go to hell. That you don't deserve to be cast in the lake of fire. Here's what Jesus had to preach about that moment when you don't like the outcome of your trial, that you're going to be cast in the lake of fire. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And so this is our fourth passage of a warning about hell from the Bible for us today. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Amen and amen. amen. Is it in the red writing in your Bible? if you have a red letter edition. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus preaching. This is how Jesus preached. There's nothing about inviting Jesus into your heart. There's nothing about baptism. It's those that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Otherwise, he does not know you. When you think of the will of the Father which is in heaven, what part of your life does God's will not apply to? Can you cough up a few for me? 
Because I'm afraid in my reading and studying that the Word of God covers every single part of my life. Is there some part of your life that the will of the Father does not cover? Does He cover your time? Does He? Does He cover the amount of time you sleep? Does He cover your finances? Your moods? What you look at? Does it say, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes? Does the Bible cover every part of your life? The will of the Father covers every part of your life. And if you are not doing, but you are rebelling against the will of the Father, Jesus here says, he doesn't know you. Because the ones he knows, should I cheat and look ahead into John 10? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here we are with the word of God. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. They love the verses that say that we call Jesus Lord in Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But Jesus said that when you start using that word Lord, if you haven't been doing what the Father gave you to do, it doesn't count. He doesn't know you. And so here we have a warning about hell because it says, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus is in heaven. There's only other one place for you to depart to. And it's not limbo. It's hell. It's the lake of fire. It's Matthew chapter 7. You have talked and lied your way out of trouble before, but you will not do so then. This judge is not manipulated at all. The only chance you have is to have lived your life in this world obediently to God. According to this text, do not think any Arminian or Calvinist lie that a decision or your faith or baptism will help. There will be many, not a few, but many, presuming eternal life that will be soundly rejected. They will have thought they have eternal life. They will believe at that moment that there's a mistake that's been made, that they are preachers, that they have done wonderful works for Jesus Christ, that they know his name, and that calling his name is somehow going to save them, and it means nothing to the judge on that throne. What it means to the judge on that throne is whether they have done the will of their Father which is in heaven. Now, which part of your life do you want me to go after? Your moods? Your complaining and whining? Your disrespect of government officials? Your irreverence as a wife? Your fantasies about someone else that you're not married to? You not training your children the way you should? What part of your life do we need to go after to get your attention? The will of the Father extends to every part of our lives. I love this verse. I love Matthew 7, 21 because of the doctrine it contains and Jesus preached it. Not everyone that saith unto me, and they are addressing the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is not the criterion. The criterion is, he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And the Father's will covers every part of our lives. I don't think I need to say it any more times, but I hope you got the message. There's going to be many thinking that they they should get in. It's not a few, it's many. They will have all kinds of religious works better than yours to claim. How many in here are preachers of the gospel that have prophesied in the name of Jesus Christ? How many in here have cast out devils in the name of Jesus of Nazareth? You say, how could that be possibly true? That a person could cast out devils in the name of Jesus of Nazareth? May I remind you of one named Judas Iscariot. Just because you have the the gifts of the Holy Spirit... God can give gifts to asses that Balaam is on. Doesn't prove anything. How obedient. How submissive are we to the will of the Father in heaven? 
When the will of the Father in heaven is presented to us at a men's meeting or a ladies' meeting or a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning or an update or a proverb commentary, do you read it with trembling? I need to change that thing in my life. That's doing the will of the Father which is in heaven. And the will of the Father in this church is presented over and over and over repeatedly, repetitively, as carefully, as persuasively, as enthusiastically, as detailed as possible. What are we going to do about it? Here we stand. We get to have heaven opened and us see what it's going to be like in the day of judgment. And this is what it's going to be like. And I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. You say, well, I know the Lord. That doesn't matter. All these people know the Lord. Can't you tell that? They're calling him by his right name, and they've preached him. And you couldn't tell when they preached that Jesus didn't know them. It doesn't matter if you know him. Where does it say that in the Bible? Help me in the Bible where it says that if you know him, that's all that matters. It tells me in the Bible, him knowing you is what matters. It tells me in the Bible that if you say you know him, but you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And I call you a liar right now. When you think of the whole spectrum of God's will for our lives, if you're not doing it, you are a liar. I don't even know why you're here. You're lying by being here. Because you're trying to pretend you know him. If you know him, you will not sin again. Why should I say that you're going to sin every three seconds? What kind of a person knows him that does that? You say, but pastor, don't we sin once in a while? Why are you worried about that right now? Are you already trying to cover for yourself? Why should we sin? Let's do the will of our Father which is in heaven. Let's let hell grip our souls. Let's let the God that casts men into hell grip our souls that we will not sin. Matthew chapter 7. He must know you, otherwise you will be cast into hell. Knowing him is irrelevant. God knows those that are his. Who are they? The Lord knoweth them that are his. Let me get the whole verse, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, this is because the faith of some is overthrown. 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Do you like that verse? I'm not done with that verse. Let's see if you like the second half of the verse. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Amen. Does that, does that assume that we can depart from iniquity? Yes. It does. If we name the name of Christ, should all things be old and all things become new? Amen. There it is. Amen. That's Matthew 7. Four passages. Can you remember them? Luke 12. I'll forewarn you whom you shall fear. Luke 16. The rich man lifted up his eyes in hell. Revelation 20. Cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 7. Only those that do the will of their Father which is in heaven. Let's go to Matthew 5. Same sermon. Oh, you're kidding. Would Jesus mention hellfire twice in the same sermon? That's unusual. Matthew 5. I have already used Matthew 5, so let's say three times. Because I have given you already today when we opened up the first service this morning of what Paul said to Felix. And he reasoned with him of, I forgot those three words. Paul reasoned with Felix of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. For righteousness, I quoted verse 20. For I say unto you, is this in the red writing? For I say unto you, that unless I died on the cross and gave you perfect imputed righteousness, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven? No. That except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that was a reference in this chapter, in this sermon that I used before. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. But I want the next couple of verses. Verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. 
And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. I'm glad that everyone here agrees with that. That murder is bad. Murder's bad enough that a murderer deserves to go to hell. I think everyone here probably agrees with that. Yep, Adolf Hitler should be in hell. Joseph Stalin should be in hell. Mao Zedong should be in hell. Son of Sam should be in hell. Sirhan Sirhan should be in hell. You all agree with that. But what a, Jesus continued. Jesus wasn't content with you believing that murderers ought to be in hell that have actually taken other person's life. But I say unto you, Jesus is setting his doctrine at opposition to the doctrine of verse 21. The doctrine of verse 21 is not Moses' doctrine. It's not God's doctrine, though the words, thou shalt not kill, are Moses' doctrine and God's doctrine. All of verse 21 is, the scribes and Pharisees, you have heard by them of old time. You have heard in our rabbinical tradition of the Jews that the taking of a physical life deserves judgment. And Jesus just takes it a whole lot further than that. They limited it. They limited the sixth commandment to actually taking another person's physical life. But even in the Old Testament, it was broader than that for you to keep the words, thou shalt not kill. You kept a person's reputation up. How do you kill a person's reputation? Can you think of a B word? Backbiting. Can you think of a T word? Tailbearing and tattling. Can you think of a W word? Whispering. Can you think of an S word? Slandering. The Bible just expands the commandments of God out. And here's Jesus in verse 21. I say unto you that it is not as limited as you wish it were about murder. That whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Hell fire for calling someone unnecessarily, foolishly, impulsively, angrily, thou fool. I beg you to consider the weight of these verses taught by Jesus Christ that extend murder far beyond taking a physical life so that a person is no longer breathing. It extends to calling them a name when you don't have a righteous, just cause to do so. For you being angry without a righteous, just cause, and that is never your cause. It is God's cause. Short of God's cause, you should be loving your enemies. You should be forgiving the 100 pence that was taken from you because God forgave the 10,000 talents you took from him. Look at the weight of these verses. Where does hellfire come in? It doesn't come in with you being a drug user. It doesn't come in with you being a serial killer. It comes in with calling names unjustifiably. And some of you like to do it because you grew up in homes filled with anger and hate and viciousness, and that's all you know. You are junkyard dogs. Why do you call names when you get angry? Why do I? Look at the text. This is a warning about hell. Can we stop calling people names? Can we stop being angry without a cause? God's cause. Lord, help us. Let's repent. This is the warning. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You know what everybody wants in the Sermon on the Mount? Listen, let me preach it the way they preach it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why don't you show me your poor spirit so that I can know you're going to heaven? Do you know how you can show me your poor spirit so that I can know you're going to heaven? You will never call another person, another name. You will never be angry with them without a cause. That's right. how you show that you're poor in spirit and you're going to heaven. Because that's taking verses 20, 21, and 22 and explaining verse 3 with him. Amen. Everybody wants the Beatitudes. They want to be blessed. You know, the Twin Towers fall down. 
Our government stands on the steps in Washington, D.C. and sings, God bless America. Why should God bless America? Why do they think God will bless America? What do they know about God and what do they know about blessing? Do you know how we get God's blessing on this nation? Is to have a Thanksgiving day like they used to call for when they said to forego your ordinary amusements in order to give yourself to confession and repentance of the nation's sins that God might have mercy upon this nation. Then we can have blessing because blessing follows repentance. Whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Do you think maybe you ought to control your mouth just a little bit more? Well, the Lord just made me to fly off the handle sometimes. Oh, wait a minute. You're going to start to blame God for your sins? God made you to fly off the handle. No, you fly off the handle because you're a junkyard dog. And I'm being terribly cruel to dogs to compare you to one of them. Let's, let's, listen, let's let the warning of God's word grip us. I have as wild of a spirit and tongue as any. Lord, help me rule it. It is man's depraved folly that wants to limit God's commandments to make them easier to keep. And that's what the Jewish rabbis did in verse 21. They limited it to the actual overt act of taking a life when the Bible opens up the sixth commandment to include, oh, so much more. Jesus identified unjustified anger. That's God saying it's justified, not you saying it's justified. Anger or name-calling is violating the sixth commandment and the consequences of this lesser crime is just the same as the literal crime, the real danger of hellfire. All murderers shall be in the lake of fire because the Bible says so in Revelation 21 and verse 8. All murderers shall be in the lake of fire, but Jesus is telling you that all name-callers are murderers and they'll be in the lake of fire. Jesus is saying those that are angry with their brother without a cause are in danger of hellfire and God's judgment. So we need to let the Bible speak to us completely and plainly. Think of this the next time you use harsh language to your spouse. If there's ever been a brother that we shouldn't be angry with, it's our spouse. Especially wives. You want to shoot your mouths off at your husband? Let this verse stick in your craw. Let this verse stay in your memory to shut your mouth. Who do you think you are? You don't have a right to an opinion. In the Garden of Eden, you told the God of Heaven, I do not ever want an opinion for the rest of my life in marriage. Because God said in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be to your husband and he will rule over you. You do not have a right to an opinion. You have a right to your husband's opinion. And if you want to shoot your mouth off against your husband, you are in Matthew 5.21 and you are on your way to hell. It doesn't matter that you love to sing, oh, how I love Jesus. Because your love of Jesus doesn't mean anything. It is doing the will of your Father which is in heaven. I want to warn us so that we don't play games about hell. God is different than we are. He's holy. That throne is white. He judges according to the standard of his righteousness, not ours. Our standard of righteousness is so diluted and so weak and so compromising, you can't even hardly bear what I'm saying because I can hardly bear to say it. It's so different from everything that we know. Nebuchadnezzar. God loved Nebuchadnezzar as a king. I didn't say as a person. As a king. He was the head of gold. He was a king of kings in God's naming of him. King of kings. Because if you didn't want to do something his way, he simply said he would cut you in pieces and turn your house into a dunghill. 
And it could be the most minor thing that you can think of. Like, I'm going to start a new religion today. I'm going to raise up an image, and you are going to bow down when the praise band plays. And if you don't do it, you'll be cut in pieces and turned into a dunghill. That's a king. King James, with the conspirators against him. How much opposition do you think he got from Congress and the media when he wanted them hung, drawn, and quartered? How much opposition do you think he got from the media when he found out who all the conspirators were by pulling Guy Fawkes apart on the rack? We don't know authority. Our government has to apologize for its least and slightest use of authority, its least and slightest use of punishment. It's disgraceful. And so we don't understand the fear of God. But there have been generations in the past that knew where the word of a king is, there is power. Ecclesiastes 8.4. Where the word of a king is, there is power. We shoot our mouths off. We caricaturize. We make jokes about government officials, about bosses. You know, since you men are there sitting high and mighty because I just worked your wives over, if you speak against your boss on the job, you are doing what they did to you. And you are guilty of the crime that I just made them guilty of. And so we have Matthew chapter 5 and verses 21 and 22. We should think about it the next time we use harsh language and when we're upset about somebody. What do the false versions do with verse 22? What do all the modern versions do with Matthew 5.22? Without a cause, they take out of Matthew 5.22. Let's go to Matthew 8. Matthew 8. What can we find in Matthew 8? We are going to find some that understood some fear of God. Matthew chapter 8. It's the country of the Gergesenes. Now do you know who we're going to meet? There's two of them. They're possessed with devils. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? I want you to think about some spirits, some devil spirits in two men that were so exceeding fierce, no one dared get near this cemetery where they lived because of the danger to their own lives by the fierceness of these devil-possessed men. Yet these devil-possessed men come right out of that cemetery to meet Jesus and do obeisance to him and acknowledge that he is the Son of God because they know that he is going to throw them in to the place that I am trying to preach to you today, and that's hell. That's the place of torment. Because Matthew 25 is going to teach us that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. They know they're going there. They know this doctrine. They tremble before this doctrine. They come out and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and his timing is off because they don't want to go earlier than they have to go. I wish that we trembled as much. Matthew chapter 8. The devils were exceeding fierce. Why does it tell us that? In these two possessed men, yet they feared Jesus. Do you see that? Exceeding fierce, fearing Jesus. They knew what men choose to ignore. A coming day of judgment to eternal torment. The devils believe and tremble. But most men, even Christians, are at ease in Zion. And we shouldn't be at ease. Let's go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. 
You'd think we'd be out of the Gospel of Matthew by now. Not yet. Oh no, not yet. Matthew 13. I don't need to tell you the whole parable of the terrors, do I? Why don't we just look at the bottom line? Let's just cut to the chase on the parable of the tares and get the Lord's explanation for the whole thing. Matthew 13 and verse 40. Tares, a plant that looked like wheat, that the devil sowed. The wheat's the children of God. The tares, the children of the devil. And here's what Jesus taught. Is it in the red writing again? Matthew's got a lot of that, doesn't he? Matthew 13, 40. As therefore the tares, these weeds, these junkyard dogs, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. Ye workers of iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the end of the world. Thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful explanation. The parable of the tares tells the truth. All offenders are thrown into a furnace of fire. Things that offend. Do you offend God? Does your marriage offend God? Do your thoughts offend God? Does your reading material offend God? Does your use of time offend God? Does your laziness offend God? Does your lack of service to the church offend God? Does your lack of hospitality offend God? All things that offend. All things that offend. It's the will of our Father, all the things that I just mentioned to you, and 1,050 that I didn't mention. All things that offend. And them which do iniquity shall be cast into a furnace of fire. Remember, the Lord Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. All them which do iniquity. You know, we don't like the parable of the tares. But it's the word of God. Jesus is coming with his mighty angels, and no one will resist sentencing or the execution of the sentence. No one will avoid judgment. No one's going to be a no-show in this courtroom that's coming. Because Jesus is coming from heaven with his mighty angels. You will be there. That's your parole officer. That's your probation officer. You will show up in court at the appointed time for the books to be opened and for you to be found an offender and for you to be found a worker of iniquity. And you will be cast into the lake of fire, into a furnace of fire in this particular passage. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible place. Lord, let us live like wheat. That's all we can do, is live like wheat. The Lord has sown the wheat. The devil has sown the tares. Under the administration of the Lord, of course. The only thing we can do is to live like wheat. How do we live like wheat, Pastor? Please tell me how we can live like wheat. I've already taught you 40 different ways this morning, but let me give you one more right here. Don't ever offend God again. Don't offend God again. And don't commit iniquity again. How much does it bother you to ever disappoint the Lord? Even short of sin, just to disappoint the Lord, that you didn't give him your best. Does it really mess you up? Do you scream? Do you pound something that's nearby? Do fast food employees offend you when they haven't put food in your front lap before you can even bring your vehicle to a stop at a drive through window? Probably. How easily do we offend God? Some fast food employee working for minimum wage, got a room temperature IQ, and we get, we get offended. But what about God being offended with us? We should hate the thought. The only way to avoid it is to give him our best. Our fastest, our bestest, every time. 
Help us, Lord. The torment of hell is described in this place as wailing and gnashing of teeth. Hear it. Stop offending God in your miserable life. Repent. Turn from your wickedness today. I didn't know that Matthew had so much. Well, before you say Matthew, you should say to me, I didn't know that Matthew 13 had so much. Because now let's go to verse 47. Matthew 13, 47. I would think that given what we just read and the long version of it, the parable of the tares, that should be enough for one chapter. But it's not for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to verse 47. Again, again. Is it okay if I bring a few examples to you from the Bible? If I warn you a few times? Again, again. The Lord knows when he does it again. There'll be a day coming where I don't know when I do it again. But right now I know that I'm doing it again. Because the Lord did it again. Again. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And today I'm bringing out something old for you, because, yea, Lord, I understand that you want me to preach on this today. Right. Again, the parable of the fishes tells the truth. All offenders are thrown into a furnace of fire. Jesus doesn't think very highly of humanity, does he? He doesn't think very highly of the human spirit because the net is thrown into the sea of humanity and it pulls up all kinds and the angels get to sit down and say, this is a good fish, We're gonna, that's a keeper. Ever heard that? This, it's a keeper. Put it in the cooler, we'll take it home. Oh, throw that thing away. Throw that piece of trash away. This is the Lord. Yep. How can I be a good fishy? Don't offend. Don't offend them. Bad fishies that are thrown away are offensive fish. They stink. They're corrupt. They're rotten. They're not good for eating. They don't cause pleasure. We need to be causing pleasure to our Father which is in heaven by doing His will. His will covers every part of our lives. Let's not offend Him. Let's not disappoint Him. Jesus is coming with His mighty angels and no one will resist sentencing or execution. And I've already said that earlier, didn't I? But notice, it wants you to know the angels are coming. And the angels are not coming to put their arm around you and say, I want to be your friend. That's not why the angels are coming. In 2 Thessalonians 1, which you read in the last couple of days on, a, on one particular reading program that we have, it says he's coming from heaven with his mighty, mighty angels, and he's coming in flaming fire because it's this furnace work that he's got to get done. The angels are not coming to put an arm around you. The angels are not coming to deliver you. I know the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them that fear him. How do we fear God? We keep his commandments. Should we go to that text right now? Do you really want the last text of Solomon in the book of philosophy called Ecclesiastes? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so ends the book of Ecclesiastes. No? No? Who said that? Is there more? Is there more? Is there another verse that explains to us that 13th verse? Let's get to 13th verse again, because it sounds like it's the end. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The end. We memorize Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Our children need Ecclesiastes 12, 14 as well. For God shall bring every work into judgment 
with every secret thing. Every one of your secrets, God's bringing into judgment. But I'm back here in Matthew 13 because I want to milk Ecclesiastes 12 when the time is appropriate. Matthew chapter 13, look at that again. Jesus knew he was giving them the lesson again about a net gathering all kinds of fishes and the angels separating the good from the bad and the bad are cast into a furnace of fire. And here, the definition is the wicked versus the just. The righteous versus sinners. What can your life be called? Are you just? Are you righteous? Do you do things that are right in God's opinion? That's Matthew 13. Why don't we go over to Matthew 22? See if we can find something in Matthew 22. Maybe we finally exhausted this gospel. I don't think so, though. And let's quickly do it so that you can have some time today to think about these things. But let's do more than think about them. Can we put some legs to this today? Can we be more careful to not offend God? Can we be more careful with our speech? More careful with our time, our thoughts? more careful with every part of our lives. That's why we come together to be reminded. That's why there's a proverb commentary every day. That's why there's updates. Because I'm trying to needle you. I know I needle you. I don't like doing it. But I have to do it. So therefore, I like doing it. Do you understand that? Yeah. I think you say the same things to your children. I don't like doing this, but because I'm supposed to, and because it's for your good, and I'm not going to tell you, but I do like doing this because you have been cruising for a bruising recently in this household. And so I got to get a little flesh out of you. Because sometimes, you, parents, don't you know that? Amen. You can start to feel, I just need an occasion. I just need an occasion. Let me, let me give them a few new rules. Um, <laughs> children, still love your daddy. Lord, help us to do what is right. Matthew 22 has got another one for us. Verse 8. The Jews did not want the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so he burned up their city in verses 1 through 7. Jesus, by God, through Christ, had ordained a kingdom. The Jews didn't want it. Then saith he to his servants, these are the apostles, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So here go the apostles all over the world. They began their witnessing in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. And thank the Lord for this. This is about us. So we can get excited for just a couple of verses, because then it's not very exciting. But let's be excited for a couple of verses that the apostles went into the highways and hedges and compelled us Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. Oh, that's why I say some of the things I say about the people sitting in this church. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And he was speechless. Mm -hmm. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called by the ministry of the apostles and the preachers that came from them, and so they come in and sit in pews in churches, but only a few are chosen. It's not my word, it's Jesus' word, and this is how he preached. These are Gentiles. We have a Gentile church. Not everyone sitting in here is going to heaven. I'm just honest enough as a pastor to tell you that from time to time. Most pastors wouldn't dare say that. That's just too harsh, and it's not politically correct today. But Jesus did it. Jesus is the one that said that the way to destruction has a wide gate and is a broad way, and there's many in it. But the straight gate, the narrow way, only has a few in it. 
And we sang that in number 26 in our Burgundy Hymnal. Jesus said, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, so they know about Jesus Christ. But he doesn't know them. And so we've got Matthew 22. Many are called. The many, for our purpose right now, are those sitting right here in this room. That is the superset. Many are called. There is a subset of those that are chosen. How do we know that we're chosen? Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. You want to make your calling and election sure? Then there's eight things given to you in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7 that you should do. And you can make your calling and election sure. And Peter is so confident about his answer. How do I know that I'm one of God's chosen? He said, if ye shall do these things, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. You'll never fall because you'll have a foundation laid up for the time to come. Because the Bible says we can lay up a foundation. And that foundation is our obedience to Jesus Christ. Foundation can only be laid by those that are born again. But why did I even tell you that? Because it is unnecessary for the point. What's necessary is that we obey. This is Matthew 22. They don't have on a wedding garment. Well, what is the wedding garment? What do you want me to make the wedding garment for you right now? Do you want that to be the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we can all be faithless and go home and not change our lives? Is that what you want? I think you're asking me that. I think you want me to jam imputed righteousness into this passage. But that is inconsistent with every other passage about a furnace of fire, isn't it? It's inconsistent with everything else Jesus has said. It's not those that have imputed righteousness. It's those that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. So I'm going to stick with that. You don't have anything on. If you have practical righteousness, what else do you have on? Imputed righteousness. We know that he that doeth righteousness is righteous because he is righteous. It's 1 John 3, 7. That's Matthew 22. How about Matthew 25? Does Matthew 25 have anything in it? Matthew 25. I don't need to read this whole thing to you, do I? Verses 31 through 46. The last 16 verses of Matthew 25 is Jesus Christ in his glory, on the throne of glory, separating the nations, separating the tares from the wheat, separating the goats from the sheep, separating the good fish from the bad fish, separating the reprobates from his children. It's all the work of separation. He's got the sheep on his right hand. He's got the goats on his left. And what does he tell the goats in verse 31? Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed. Is this in the red writing? Or am I reading the book of some monster? This is not a monster. This is the Lord Jesus Christ of the universe. This is the Son of God. And if you don't like God's Son, and you want to neglect God's Son, then go back to Matthew 22, the first seven verses, where it says they made light of it. They made light of it. They made light of it. He burned up their city and destroyed them. He deserves our full and undivided attention. This is the Son of the living God. He sent His Son to earth. And he's dividing, and he says in verse 41, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. See, the devil and his angels know where they're going into the everlasting fire God's prepared for them. Do we know that? He says in verse 34, To those on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's the two places, there's only two places to go. The heavenly kingdom prepared for the righteous from the beginning of the world and the place prepared for the devil and his angels. And so it says in verse 46, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And how are they measured? How are the righteous and the wicked measured? How are the sheep and the goats measured? By this passage, this passage, Jesus taught a lesson here. How are they measured? Are the sheep on his right hand the ones that invited him into their hearts? Are the sheep on his right hands the ones that believe that regeneration precedes faith? Are the ones on his right hand the ones that got a Baptist baptism? 
are the ones on his right hand, the ones that believe that the man of sin are the popes of Rome. What are the ones on his right hand? To the least of the brethren in a church, to the least of the brethren in a church, they want to clothe them, feed them, shelter them, visit them. Hospitality, entertainment. It isn't me, it's this. We didn't always practice this in this church, but by the grace of God and some little tiny measure of faithfulness in your pastor, he preaches the whole counsel of God. And if you're not hospitable, you're on the left hand and you're going to hell. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you think you believe. It doesn't matter that you know God. It doesn't matter that you pray. It doesn't matter that you read your Bible. It doesn't matter that you believe in election and predestination. If you're not practicing hospitality, you don't measure up to the passage because the whole passage is about hospitality. There's nothing else in the passage but hospitality. There's nothing else there. Boy, I have to preach it. You have to hear it. What are we going to do about it? All of us. It's the word of God. Let's get excited about it. Who can we do something for today? Who can I take out to eat? You want to qualify by this passage? The least in the church. Now, if you get an invitation from someone in a few minutes, (laughs) I know what you're going to be thinking. Oh, no. When they took the whole church directory and ran from top to bottom, they found me. Who said amen? I got you. I got you covered. This is the word of God. Look at how practical it is, how personal it is. It's something we can do. And it's the measure. I didn't make this up. I'm not twisting this passage out of its proper place. This is Jesus talking about the great day of judgment. This is Jesus separating all men, good and bad, righteous and wicked. And it calls them just, it calls them righteous, it calls them wicked, it calls them cursed. Who's a cursed person? They don't love others, because love is the greatest measure of a child of God. The real change in nature is love, because we are so selfish and we love ourselves. We love ourselves, and so the real change in a man is not faith. Devils believe and tremble. The real change in a man is love, and real love has to be sacrificial so that it's toward the least of these, my brethren. It's not toward your friends. If you just invite your friends out, that doesn't count at all. If you invite those out that are easy, that doesn't count at all. It's when you invite those out that are hard work. (laughs) I got this one. That's hard work. I I just want you to be thinking through. When you just take somebody out that's easy, listen, Sherry and I know the difference. We'll look at each other. I'm just going to confess. Here I am. There ain't nothing to hide. We just look at each other. That's going to be work. Let's do it for the Lord's sake. And I'm just going ahead and telling you that because you all know that, that there's some that are less work than others. And if you're doing the ones that are less work, then there's less reward and less qualifying in Matthew 25. One in Mark and we're done. I'm sorry that I'm going over Matthew, but I can't leave this one. I can't leave this one. This is, this is Mark. Now, you better have a King James Bible, because if you have any other version, you're not going to have at least one half of the words that I'm about to read to you. They, they have messed this passage up so bad. But here I go. I want to read you this passage, and we're going to end with this. Mark 9 and verse 43. Mark 9, 43. And if thy hand offend thee, are we all there? Mark 9, 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, 
and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And I'm going to stop right there for a moment. You can ask me anything you want about verses 49 and 50 afterwards if you are convinced of the verses 43 through 48. I do not want to distract you by giving you an explanation for an obscure text of Scripture that has a very good answer about the, purge, the purifying and the refining aspects of salt and fire. They can, be, they can be helpful in preserving both things. Is fire a preservative? It's a refiner. Is salt a preservative? Yes. Is salt a destroyer? Salt is a corrosive destroyer, and so is fire. That's all I need to say to you. You just got the explanation of verse 49. And I am ashamed and disappointed in myself for even wasting that time, but I don't want to disappoint you because I want you in verses 43 through 48. And do you know what it says? When you've got something that's dear to you, it's like your right hand. It's always there. You're used to using it, but it leads you to sin. It leads you to offend and disappoint God. Cut it off. If your right foot takes you places where you shouldn't go, cut it off. Because it'd be better if you didn't have this and be maimed. It'd be better if you didn't have this and be halt. And then pluck out your right eye. Something pleasant. You enjoy watching this television. Or you enjoy looking at this on the internet. Pluck that eye out. Because it would be better for you to be in the kingdom of God with one eye. And it doesn't mean it literally. It's a metaphor. Cut those things off. Because it would be better to be in the kingdom of God, denying yourself some of those ungodly lusts, and go to heaven, than to have both parts of your body and have those little toys and favorite sins that you've got and go to hell. So look at what the Lord Jesus Christ is warning us about hell. Are we willing to cut off a hand, cut off a foot, and pluck out an eye. What is it? Is it speech? Is it time? Is it money? Is it thoughts? Is it viewing material? Is it your relationship? What is it? It's everything. It's everything the Father wants us to do. Can we, with the fear of hell and the fear of God, who can cast body and soul into hell, can we serve him the rest of today? Yes, we know a whole lot more about him than what I've given you today. But see, I've given you that for years and years and years. Why would I want to re repeat myself today on that stuff? I don't want to comfort you today. I want to exhort you and warn you because that's what Jesus did over and over, and that is what Paul did over and over. If you repent and show some, show some progress in your life, as we have and should as a church, there'll be plenty of time for comfort in the days to come. May the Lord bless us to not offend him. Not to be workers of iniquity, but to change our lives. Not even to think of calling somebody a fool. We're murderers, and all murderers shall have their part in the lake of fire. All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8. If the Lord leads us to consider this subject further, we'll look at very many more. That was page 7 out of 15. We'll just trust the Lord whether he leads us someplace else or not. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.